Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder from Canada. And I think that um, you know definitely he has a lot to share. He's transforming a pretty um outdated industry. Uh and I think that uh, you know, like definitely what he has accomplished so far is very, very impressive. So I think I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jack Newton. Welcome to the Deal Maker Show. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Toronto, so how was life there and also growing up in Edmonton? Yeah, so I, I was born in Toronto. I got a feel for uh, what the big city was uh, was all about, and I still have uh, a bunch of uh, my extended family in Toronto and, and visit there as, as often as I, I can. Uh, but I, I really grew up in, in Edmonton, uh, went to junior high and, and high school, uh, in Edmonton and uh, did my university uh, degrees, my my undergrad and, and master's degree uh, in Edmonton as well. So uh, a smaller city, about a million people uh, and, and very cold. Edmonton gets down to uh, minus 40 uh, in the winter pretty frequently. And that's, that's the same temperature in Celsius and Fahrenheit, by the way. So cold uh, on either scale. Uh, so uh, I, I think that makes for, you know, kind of a, a hardy uh environment. There's uh, hardcore people that live in, uh, in Edmonton. And uh, my most recent uh, journey westward is, is to Vancouver, where I, where I live now. Very nice. And obviously, you went to, um, to university there, and you specialized in machine learning. I mean, probably like there's not a lot of people talking about machine learning just as much as they talk now about it. Everyone in their mother seems to be doing machine learning nowadays. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, I was doing machine learning before machine learning was was cool. Um, got got you know the privilege of working with some researchers at the University of Alberta, which is actually an exceptionally strong school for for machine learning. Uh, there's uh, um, Jonathan Schaefer, who's a well known uh, AI and machine learning expert. Uh, he uh, built some of the the best AI for checkers and later chess and uh no limit texas hold'em poker uh built the the best uh poker uh playing ai uh, on the planet back in the the early 2000s and and a very interesting fork in the road for me actually back in the 
early 2000s was when I was done my master's uh, deciding whether I went into industry or went into academia. And uh, I was being recruited by the University of Toronto uh, to go do my PhD uh, with, with a great scholarship and an amazing professor to work with who was Jeff Hinton, who uh, you know, was already will, really well known in the machine learning community at, at, at that point in his career, and obviously with the, the impact that his uh, neural networks work has had over the last decade, he's he's an order of magnitude more well known now. But uh, very interesting to to think about what an alternate path for me might have looked like um, had I gone the the academia route rather than than industry. Got it. And obviously, I mean, it's a it's amazing how you have uh, applied your knowledge and how you have been jumping from one industry to another. So here you go from academia, you know, you go into startups, into obviously medical diagnostics and then to legal. I mean, it's it's really interesting, you know, like how you jump from one industry to another. So let's go with the first jump, you know, going into medical diagnostics and really getting a feel for the world of startups. How was that? Yeah, so it was, it was actually really interesting. I was uh, between my bachelor's and master's degree when I uh, got my first job out of school, w which was at a company called Konomics. And what Konomics was doing was building medical diagnostic software in, uh, in this industry that was really pretty old school, do, doing, you know, these, these assays that took uh, days or weeks of time to complete and, and often took thousands of dollars of investment to, to get this assay of, of potentially 100 or 200 metabolites assessed. And, and what Konomics was working on was this really fascinating technology to use high-field nuclear magnetic resonance technology which is basically a flavor of MRI, if, if uh, your listeners are familiar with make uh, magnetic resonance imagery. Uh, this is the same concept just applied at a much higher field strength, much more powerful field strength uh, to small biofluids. And these biofluids could be cerebral spinal fluid, they could be blood, they could be urine. And what you would look for in these biofluids is uh, metabolites. And with a single one minute scan from this nuclear magnetic resonance or NMR machine, you could get uh, a, a complete view of every metabolite in that biofluid. And I, I became software developer number one at Konomics when I was referred there by one of the profs I was uh, working with at the University of Alberta and basically went there, uh, you know, after my bachelor's degree and started working on this problem and rapidly realized actually that I had no idea how to solve this problem. I was, I was fundamentally ill-equipped to solve the very complex uh, machine learning slash AI problem that they they had to solve at uh, at Konomics, and that actually was a catalyst for me to go back to school uh, and and do my master's degree in machine learning because I just found this whole this whole area so fascinating, and uh, I went back to school, did my master's degree in in two years, and actually went back to Konomics. Two years later, basically, you know, with a smile on my face saying, you know, I, I know how to solve this problem now and, and, and got to work. And what was really interesting was, you know, in those two years, the company had raised uh, about a million dollars 
they had grown from four people when I joined to, you know, over 25 people when I, when I returned and I came in as the, the director of product development and got to, you know, really work on the go-to-market strategy and the, uh, the technical aspects of, of solving this, this diagnostics problem. And I, uh, through the exposure of fundraising and uh, and building this product, I, I really caught the the startup bug and became really passionate about the idea of of building startups. So then, you know, it's interesting because here, obviously, you were for for quite a while. I mean, we're talking about five years or so that you were working for the business. I mean, you really got to see the inside and the outside of of being in the in the in a startup, you know, itself. So why, you know, did you decide to, hey, you know, like, I'm going to do it myself. Like, at what point do you really decide, I'm going to take the leap of faith? This is this is my time to, to go at it and, and make it happen. Yeah, it was actually a really interesting journey for 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 me. You know, one of the realizations at, at Economics when, when I had been there for, you know, a few years after finishing my master's degree was, you know, I'm having a ton of fun. I love doing this, but I really started to get the itch to do it myself, to, to have the increased stakes of actually being the founder, going out and, and, and fundraising and, um, and building something from scratch. And so, you know, I was always highly entrepreneurial. I, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I had a variety of both successful and unsuccessful ventures that I, I would experiment with everything from running a snow shoveling service in Edmonton, which, you know, as I mentioned, the weather was uh, often pretty horrible. The, the snow shoveling business where I, you know, had a, a network of, of snow shoveling employees, uh, uh, mainly made up of my brothers, uh, did a booming business. Uh, I had a, launched a flavor of a, uh, an early Amazon.com focused on, on food delivery to remote communities in Canada. Um, and, and, you know, my co-founder Ryan and I—we've known each other since we were eight years old. We actually met uh, in uh, in elementary school uh, in in Edmonton. Uh, we had for for years been you know wanting to do something entrepreneurial. We dreamed of building our own company from from scratch, and and we became increasingly passionate about this this idea that we could build you know, a lifestyle business together. And, and if this business threw off, you know, a uh, hundred thousand dollars a year, we would call that a, a big success. So we were looking for an opportunity to build this kind of a lifestyle business. And back in 2007 or so, we saw the cloud as one of these once in a lifetime technological transformation waves that was going to fundamentally alter and transform almost every industry on the planet. And we, we at that point really became two, two hammers looking for a nail. You know, I, Ryan was working at Gowlings, which is uh, one of the largest law firms in, in Canada with, with over a thousand lawyers. And, and I was at, at Canobics and we, we started looking for, you know, an industry that could benefit from the impact of, of cloud technology. And, you know, thanks in, in large part to Ryan's exposure to legal technology that Gowlings was using uh, and and Ryan witnessing firsthand how awful that that technology was frankly uh, we we rapidly honed in on legal as this gigantic opportunity and you know we we started 
slow. We started, you know, investing in market research. We we were really surprised to find that there was no competitor for uh, for our idea, a cloud-based practice management system. We were, we were going to be the first to market with any kind of a solution in this space. And we started, you know, bootstrapping. So we actually, you know, in the early days did not make any kind of a, a grand jump uh, out of the the airplane and, and pull parachute on our our day jobs, we, we, for the first six months or so, we're really moonlighting and working on this project uh, on the evenings and, and weekends and, and, and trying to get, you know, a prototype built that we could then, you know, test with the, the market. And by the time we raised our first $100,000 of friends and family funding back in, uh, in 2008, we actually had, you know, some, some good early indications from the prototype we'd built. Uh, that we had product market fit and or at least very early product market fit and and by the time we we pulled shoot on our day jobs and went all in on Clio, uh, we actually had a lot of data that this was gonna gonna work out. so I, I think that's you know one takeaway lesson for me that that I often you know advise other prospective founders is you know that you can get a lot of data and a lot of certainty around whether your concept will work. Uh, without necessarily going to the risk of being all in from day one, and and I think there's where the real art and science comes in is is the judgment call on when do you pull shoot and go all in because it's never going to be a totally safe thing to do, but um, you need to to be really disciplined about when to make that call because if you don't go all in at some point, your idea will always remain a side project and will be doomed to sit on the, the the shelf and never get executed against the way uh, it maybe deserves to be. Of course. I mean, and, and obviously, uh, you know, what I want to ask you here is, do you think you guys, uh, you know, went all in, like maybe if you, if you could go back again, I mean, do, would you have given your notice a little bit earlier? It's it's a great question. And I, I, I do think I would have gone all in earlier with the uh, the benefit of of hindsight, and I I think one of the things you know I was I was up against at, at the early founding days of Clio was um, uh, we we had a mortgage on a house. I was recently married. My wife and I had our first kid on the way, so the the stakes felt really high for me at a you know at a personal level. And I I think the toughest thing when you're making that jump, even when the uh, the risk is maybe reduced over uh, over what it was previously. Is you're still up against the odds. You're still up against the odds that nine out of ten startups fail, and and you're really taking a gamble that you're going to be the the one out of ten that 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 makes it. Um, but I, I I think that if I if I could do it all over again, I, I would go you know all in from you know from from day one. But I I do think that. Uh, that's only with the benefit of hindsight and only the benefit of knowing that you know Clio really worked out, and we were extremely lucky that our first our first idea turned out to have the traction it did. And nice. I think this kind of approach of of placing measured bets has the, the the benefit of allowing you to make potentially multiple bets and to try out multiple ideas before you potentially find the one that is is going to stick and have the impact. Of course. So for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Clio? How do you guys make money? It's a, a very simple software as a service subscription model. So 
our early pricing was $49 a month per per user and you just simply pay as you go and you pay as you scale your usage of of Clio and for the first 6 months or so of our development we were completely free as a beta product so we were getting early feedback on the product uh early customer uh discovery really understanding who our customers are and what features they need and we we actually iterated on the product really rapidly because we got a you know we we discovered a few of our fundamental assumptions about what the product needed to do and didn't need to do were were incorrect and between march of 2008 and uh october of 2008 we went from a beta version that was was free of charge for beta customers to uh you know our very first paying customer is paying us $50 a month and up uh in october of 2008 very nice and i know that you guys also tried fundraising in a downturn so what what, what did you learn from that you know i'm sure that you got some good lessons that maybe you can apply now to what we're dealing with with coronavirus yeah yeah so i um you know look back at our timing which you know i, I think our timing was perfect uh through one lens and 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 awful through another uh, when you look at the the timing for the market i i feel like we were launching a the first cloud application in legal at precisely the right time where there was just enough early adopters for us to get traction with and to start to scale so i think from that perspective our our timing was bang on and if we were even just a year earlier I think we probably would have failed. And if we were a year later, there would have been competition that had already established a foothold in the market. So I, I think we we nailed the timing uh, by by sheer luck in, in in that sense. But from a fundraising perspective, we started trying to raise our Series A, um, you know, a, a modest Series A by today's standards of of just a million dollars in in two thousand eight slash two thousand nine, which was the 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 height of the the financial crisis related to the the housing market collapse in the in the US and much like today the mentality it's easy to forget how severe the the mentality was in in 0809 but but people really feared the economic system as it existed was going to collapse and that uh, all bets were off, essentially. And I, I think you see some of the same thinking in the the COVID nineteen world that is today, where where people are legitimately worried that the the economy is not going to look anything like it did pre COVID nineteen. And in oh eight oh nine, just like today, many investors just put away their checkbooks and said, "We're we're going to wait this one out, and we'll we'll let you know when we start writing checks." So we actually had a really frustrating and and almost demoralizing process of trying to raise money in 0809, you know, beyond that $100,000 that we raised from friends and family which uh was actually relatively easy to uh to raise thankfully and and had the good fortune of a uh a network of friends and family that were were really willing to write a check for us we, even with my my uh, disclaimer that they should treat that investment as if they were lighting the money on fire. I, I, I really made it clear to my friends and family that, uh, especially my family, that I did not want to be coming to a, a Thanksgiving dinner down the road where 
Uh, my mom and dad are eating uh, macaroni and cheese for dinner because they they lost their nest egg on on Clio. I, I I wanted to make sure people were only investing what they viewed as as discretionary funds, and we we put that hundred thousand dollars together. But the next million was unbelievably hard to uh, to raise, uh, and it was uh, pounding the pavement. You know, we went to every Western Canada angel forum that existed. Uh, we pitched to VCs from the Valley and, and heard really, really frustrating feedback, which was, this is a great pitch, a great concept. We think you're going to be successful. We're just not writing checks right now. And uh, it, it just, it was a, a really, really demoralizing process to try to raise uh, money in that time period. So my, my takeaway to your listeners that may be experiencing some of the same frustration in the COVID-19 world uh, is just to, to hold on and to keep that optimism out because the, the thing that can be very easy to, to do is to conflate the quality of your idea and conflate the quality of your execution with the market reaction you're getting that are solely due to the macro environment out there. And and realize that the macro environment will see a turnaround eventually, just as it did in 08, 09. Uh, we, we went from a recession and a you know, downturn that, that everyone was, was putting away their checkbooks to uh, a bull market that lasted for more than a, a decade on, on starting in, in 2010. So th- this, sh- this too shall pass is, is, is my advice. And, and to try to maintain uh, your, your conviction that your idea is a great one and that it will get funded and to do whatever you need to do with your burn rate to try to get to the other side of this. That's amazing. And I know that uh, for you, there is quite a funny story that has to do with spam filters and your first investor. So what happened there? Right. So this is one of my, my favorite stories of, uh, of my Clio journey. And uh, it was is related to this 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 fundraising cycle, which, uh, you know, like I said, we were demoralized. We were, you know, feeling like we had had uh, explored every avenue. We we'd gone fairly far down the line with a few investors that that ended up pulling a bit of a, a bait and switch on us and tried to try to jam a really bad deal down our throats. So we were we were feeling pretty dejected at this point, and uh, you know, w- one day my my co-founder Ryan it was was on a a phone call. I, I think it was a, a customer support call that was dragging on and on forever. And in, in what I can only describe as an act of God, Ryan decided, I, I think for the first time ever, and, and I don't think he's ever done it since, decided to check his spam folder and see what was was in there. And just to give you uh, uh, some context, we were on an early version of what is today G Suite. Uh, so, so we had you know the corporate version of the Gmail app, and Ryan decided to check out what's sitting in my spam folder while he's on this this endless uh, support call, and sees an email from Christoph Jams that was an inbound email, um, basically saying, "Hey, uh, I heard about Clio on." Uh, this blog called web2.0central.com that uh, it was a blog that happened to be run by a, a good friend of mine, Reg Tremi in, in Edmonton. Uh, he'd wrote, written a blog post about Clio 
and this this cool startup his friend Jack was was building, and Christoph happened to stumble across it, and Christoph was was based in Germany, sent this 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 email inbound to uh, to us, cold emailed us saying, "I've read about Clio, sounds like a super interesting idea. Love what you guys are are doing. Um, I'm a uh, a founder that recently sold his company, and I now I've now turned into an angel investor." I just completed my first angel investment in a company called Zendesk, uh, and this was this was when Zendesk was four guys in Copenhagen, and and Christoph was the the first angel money into into Zendesk, and he said I, I'd love to make Clio my my second investment, and uh, the the irony here, by the way, the story gets better. Uh, there was a follow up email from Christoph two weeks later uh, because we we inadvertently slow played him by ignoring his initial email. Uh, he sent a follow-up email saying, I just wanted to reiterate, I'm really interested in what Cleo's doing and would love to invest if it's possible. And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, we followed up with, with Christoph. Ryan forwarded me the, the email and said, this looks legit. Uh, I followed up with Christoph and uh, he you know, cut to a few months later and a bit of due diligence and a a 24-hour trip to Germany uh, by me and Ryan to to meet Christoph face to face, and we had a we had a deal done, and Christoph ended up leading our million-dollar Series A. So uh, truly a, a, a Deus Ex Machina kind of uh, kind of event for us where. Um, we we discovered this uh, this amazing investor, and and I've only got the the best things to say about Christoph. He's now running a very successful VC firm called Point Nine Capital uh, out of Germany, and uh, he's he's just the most incredible investor. We were so lucky to uh, to find him, or or maybe better put, for to have him find us. And uh, you know, it's it was literally just. Uh, um, a, a fluke. I, I guess his his email to to Gmail had all the hallmarks of a, a Nigerian scam email. He was offering us money. Uh, he was emailing us from a web.de email address, which probably looked like a a really sketch email address to uh, to Google. Um, and uh, and yeah, ended up leading our round. So it was uh, um, you know a, a, a huge amount of you know of of, of luck. And, and good timing to uh, to run into Kristoff. And like I said, he's he's just been an incredible supporter. And Clio wouldn't be the company it is today without uh, uh, without Kristoff's support. And the rest is history. Because how much capital have you guys raised today? Well, the rest is history, absolutely. And and you know that I jokingly uh, say, uh, but I'm actually you know uh, quite serious as well. We. That first million dollars was the hardest, uh, and and once we started to invest that million dollars and really started to demonstrate the scalability of our business model, and the fact that we could bring more and more customers to the platform, um, we we then raised a, a six million dollars Series B, led by Acton Capital. Uh, we uh, then in in two thousand sixteen raised a. A twenty million dollar Series C led by Bessemer Venture Partners, uh, and uh, just this year, actually, we uh, we announced our uh, two hundred fifty million dollar Series 
D led by TCV and JMI Equity. So we've we've now raised you know the the better part of three hundred million dollars in in building Clio, and uh, you know I, as I said the that first million dollars was was definitely the hardest. And once we started to show some real traction and and started showing that we were successfully transforming this this industry that that by and large has not adopted technology over its entire history, that we're starting to drive this. Uh, this fundamental change, we started to see some uh, some real inbound interest from investors. Absolutely. So, so here, what I want to ask you is: is obviously now everyone is adapting to working remotely, and you know, like to the new back to normal. I mean, that back to normal is is a normal that that we don't know. You know how it's definitely not going to be back to normal. It's to the new normal, right? So, I guess in that new normal, I mean, people are going to be adapting and. And I know that you guys were already, you know, like thinking about this, you know, quite ahead, you know, and, and you started like already being remote. So would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned, we we kind of bootstrapped Clio in the early days. And, you know, Ryan at that point had moved to Vancouver to pursue his bachelor's degree and eventually his master's degree in, in business administration. And, you know, when we started working on the idea that turned into Clio, um, I was working in, in Edmonton and Ryan was working in, in Vancouver. And, you know, we, we figured out ways of collaborating remotely. We were using, you know, web-based chat tools and uh, some of the early video chat tools uh, to, to collaborate and to, to work together and embrace these these precursors to to slack like campfire and uh, and hip chat and also started hiring our first handful of employees once we once we raised that that million dollar series a and started hiring employees we were we were hiring those employees in a distributed way and i was hiring a pocket of uh employees in in alberta ryan was hiring pockets of employees in uh in bc and and those employees likewise found ways to work each other, with each other in a, a distributed way. So we we've got you know as I mentioned to our our team frequently, we've got remote work built into our DNA at Clio, and I think we've always focused on a high quality experience for our employees in this uh, in this remote work situation. And have always invested in in basic things like like good AV and good you know remote worker um, accommodations uh, in the sense of high quality video chat gear in our offices and uh, and so on and and have just always had remote work as part of our culture and part of our DNA at Clio and I feel like that's served us to tremendous effect. Uh, amidst this COVID-19 crisis where back on March 13th, I told the team we're shutting down all five of our worldwide offices and we're sending 500 plus employees uh, to work from home and, and, and enforce the mandatory closure of all of our offices. And what truly amazed me was I think partially because of this remote work DNA and, and strength that we built up over the better part of 12 years. And 
and the fact that we we drink our own champagne uh, in that we we completely adopt cloud-based tools at Clio. We didn't have any on-premise systems or any hardware that employees needed to access beyond their their laptops. We were able to send everyone home, and you know it was remarkable. I sent everyone home on a Friday, and by the time everyone was logging in and and, and starting to do their job on 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 Monday morning, I, I realized we're we're not going to miss a beat here. This is this is phenomenal, and and we were we're literally able to to translate into this work from home environment, uh, and and having 500 distributed employees uh, working from from home in a really really successful and seamless way. That's super cool, super cool. And talking about people, I know that going from 50 to 100 employees was a little bit tough for you. Why was that the case? Yeah, there there was a bunch of things in the the. The, the growth story for Clio, a bunch of chapters that, that you know, I, I think about as, as being challenging. But one of the most challenging periods of growth for, you know, for me personally and, and, and for the company was in scaling from, you know, 50 to 100 people. And then I think from 100 to 200 people. And, you know, those are two very distinct growth phases. But I, I think what you're seeing in the, the first growth phase from 50 to 100 people is this growth phase where not everyone knows automatically what the company's values are and what the company's priorities are. And, and when you're less than 50 people, if you think about the, you know, the days where you're a 10 or 25 person team in a startup, everyone just automatically knows what's going on, what's important. And you've got this almost you know, intrinsic culture that that has just been created organically through the the people you've hired, and maybe the people you've fired. You know, the people you've promoted. There's your your culture is forming, and you know you, you've got to give it a chance to to evolve to its uh, to a, to a real final state. Yeah. And, and on the on the values front, what I found was that everyone felt. At, at 50 people, for example, that we had a really special culture at Clio and we had a special set of values, but nobody could actually articulate exactly what those what those were. Nobody could put their finger. We, we didn't have a list written out of what our, our core values were. And, you know, one, one of the things that we we did as an exercise when we were you know, around 75 people or so. Uh, was we went through an exercise of defining our values, and we made it really, you know, a, a grassroots thing where we we asked the team at that time, "What what do you see as the things that make Clio special?" We we all think that we've got something special here. We all know we've got something special here, but how do you put your finger on exactly what it is that makes Clio special? And and so people started to write down and brainstorm what they felt the the real pillars of Clio's values and culture were. And we ended up with our, our seven core values as, as a result. And I, I think of values, the, the most critical role values can play is, is, is really to be looked at almost as, as the rules of the sport that you're, you're, you're playing at your company. And and, and they're the rules of the sport in the sense that you're saying, this is what 
success looks like. People living these values is how we will make promotion decisions, for example. It's how we'll make hiring decisions. It's how we'll also make firing decisions. And and I think if you're if you've got your values written out and they're they're really explicit, they're really carefully thought about thought out. And and by the way, they're opinionated. I, I think it's important to have values that suggest a trade-off. You can't just have values that are are empty, for example, and suggest uh, you know, something that might be tautologically true. Like, you know, we, we have integrity, we act with integrity. You know, great. How does that help you? make a hiring decision? How does that make you, uh, how does that help you make a decision, you know, anytime? It's really not something that suggests a trade-off. And and, and for me, that's where the most powerful uh, values come from is a place where you are making a trade-off decision and you're saying, I will prioritize X over Y. And that can help employees make great decisions. And then when you're you're hiring, I think values that are written down can be enormously powerful in that you can be really transparent with candidates and say, you know, again, using the sport analogy, here's our rule book. If this doesn't, if this doesn't sound like a sport you want to play, if it doesn't sound like a, a rule set you want to be measured against, no problem, no pressure. We will, you know, happily, you know, part ways here and, and you can go find a a company that's a, a better fit for what your internal value system might be. So when you think really carefully about your values and you start to get to a point where you can write them down uh, and, and articulate them to your team and articulate them to potential hires, it opens up uh, the opportunity to scale really rapidly. And I think that's that's where a lot of startups fall down is in the scaling journey from 50 people where things are working great to 100 people. And then, you know, crucially, this, this 100 to 200 person journey where you're going through uh, the Dunbar number, for example, and you're passing that you know, 150 person threshold where you lose the ability to internalize everyone at the company and really kind of understand what makes them tick and, and feel socially connected to everyone. If you don't have some of these foundational systems uh, like a value system established, that's where you see the wheels fall off. And that's where you see companies really starting to dilute their culture, starting to lose their way, and often imploding or, or um, you know, best case scenario, stalling out uh, with respect to their, their growth. The, the other thing that I found to be really instrumental in this journey from 50 to 100 to 200 people was establishing a uh, a goal tracking system to really articulate what is most important to the company and how does that map down to what is most important for each department and what is most important for each employee. And uh, we adopted a system that's that's widely adopted uh, at at startups today uh, called uh, OKRs or Objectives and Key Results. Uh, This is a system originally pioneered by John Dewar at Intel. Uh, has been adopted by some big tech companies like like Google, and it's a really straightforward goal articulation system where you list your high level objectives and the quantifiable key results that are in service of that that main objective. But it's so powerful because again, when you're 50 people, I think everyone often just intrinsically understands what the priorities are for the company. 
and what they should be working on to support that priority. When you get to 100 people, 150 people, 200 people, you're getting to a scale where, you know, if you're not using a really rigorous goal tracking system, you can often see people working on what they think is high impact that is actually out of alignment with maybe what the the company really cares about and what the company priorities are. And you need a system that will help you scale and will help each individual contributor of your team understand how their efforts are laddering up to the company level uh, impact that everybody wants to see, but they need a system that they feel they can tie into to actually translate that impact into outcomes that are really moving the needle for the company. Yeah. And of course, I mean, John Doerr has a very nice book on this, uh, the OKRs. He does. You know, I think that it's a, it's a good book. So uh, probably the listeners should check it out. Anyways, so I want to ask you something, and it's a question that I typically ask the, the, the guests that come on the show, and that is, knowing what you know now, I mean, you've been at it for about 12 years now with Clio. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now, Jack? So I, I think really I would focus on the advice around hiring a senior leadership team, hiring an executive team more aggressively than feels natural. And I, I, I think what every founder CEO needs to be aware of that as soon as they start seeing product market fit, as soon as you've got that traction starting to happen, your full-time job should become recruiting somebody who is better than you at every aspect of your job and progressively trying to make yourself irrelevant to the business. That's actually the best case scenario, which is really a bizarre thing to think about yourself rowing toward, but realize that you're never actually going to become irrelevant to the business, but from a, a domain expertise function I should not be trying to scale myself in terms of becoming the best marketer on the planet or the best salesperson on the planet. My energy needs to be going into recruiting the best marketer on the planet, recruiting the best salesperson on the planet, recruiting the best product leader on the planet, and and really giving them the autonomy to go and kill it at their job and focusing my energy on the leadership and vision for uh, for the company. And I, I, I think for founders, especially in the early days, you're used to doing everything. And it's, it's literally almost inverting your mindset to one where you're saying, I'm doing every job and I'm wearing every hat to saying I am rapidly taking these hats off and giving them to other people uh, as, as quickly as I can. And that that juncture where you need to really abruptly shift gears uh, is all around product market fit. And I, I, I think if I had the clarity of vision around what I needed to do as soon as we started to see that that real product market fit take hold in in 2010 or so, uh, I would have been much more aggressive at, at recruiting that uh, that executive team that could help us scale over the next decade. Got it. And very profound. So for the folks that are listening, Jack, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jack underscore Newton. And feel free to shoot me an email at Jack at Clio.com, C-L-I-O.com. 
Amazing. Well, Jack, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks a lot for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.